Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents Archivos Brainstorms, episode 121. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm John Adamus. And I'm Dave Robison. And you're listening to Archivos Brainstorms. On Archivos Brainstorms, we invite writers to pitch a story idea to us and <laughs> our esteemed guest host. And then we dive in, exploring what works and what doesn't. And ultimately, we strive to transform their raw idea into literary gold. Literary gold. The the, the literary gold machine is on. It's in the house. Uh, John Adamus, my co-host for these episodes. Thank you so much, sir. I had a blast uh, talking story with you during the Insights episode. I'm so deeply grateful that you could carve some time because I know you're a busy guy. Uh, and and share, share some uh, podcast airwaves with us, man. Thank you. I love doing this. This is phenomenally amazing. This is great. I want to do this all the time. All the time. We we need we could hive off. We could do a, a a a double podcast. See, this this could be awesome. This could be this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So <laughs> and speaking of beautiful friendships, dear friends, let's welcome back our guest host, uh fresh from a Fabulous Archivos Insights, where we explored all manner of writerly goodness. My head is still reeling from the aftermath of the conversation. Please welcome back to the big chair here in the Archivos Podcast Virtual Studios, Alistair Stewart. Alistair, uh, as always, chatting story. We went way over time, and I expect that to always be the case. Always a delight, but dude, I am pumped and excited at the prospect of brainstorming a story with you, man. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, Always you know, a pleasure. You've kind of distinguished yourself. You've you've, you've earned your seat. Uh, uh, we were actually getting a brass plate put on the back of that chair that says <laughs> Alistair's seat. Uh, so, very cool. Look, before we dive into this, uh, your world, Alistair, has exploded in in kind of that uh, uh, treasure planet map uh, scene where everything kind of, ex- the whole universe explodes into a 3D model around you. That's kind of how I envision your world. So when I ask you this question, it, it's it's with understanding that this could take a while. Um, Al, what's coming up in your world, man? Firstly, uh, last week you invoked Duncan McLeod and you know made my day, and and now this week you invoke Treasure Planet. I'm just you know I I I'm never leaving. I'm never leaving. <laughs> I'm hitting all the buttons, baby. <laughs> um, all manner of stuff. I mean, I'm doing regular essays at uh, Tor.com, and I'm starting over at, started over at Barnes and Noble last year, and that's starting to get a little, little bit more regular too. Nice. Uh, I do TV reviews over MYM Buzz, which with Arrow season six basically means I watch it, so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> he I, has a point, Dave. He has a point. <laughs> he's, he's saving us all. This is part of his global public service. Thank you, Al. <laughs> I, it, a recent episode of that is the first time I've ever used the words, dear sweet Jesus, why did you do that in what wow. capital? Wow. Um, Pseudopod Tapes Volume 2, which is the second collection of my expanded essays from Pseudopod, the horror podcast I host, is out shortly. And I know we've been saying that for a while, and I know it's work from 2013, but I swear it's out shortly. <laughs> it really is. That, that was one of the, the goals on our Kickstarter, and we've had some amazing folks be you know, help us out with that and be very patient. And it's all about to pay off, and I'm really psyched for it. Um, as always, uh, Escape Artists puts out weekly science fiction, fantasy, horror, and YA through uh, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, which I host, uh, Cast of Wonders, which my partner Marguerite hosts, uh, and Podcastle. Um, I have my first creator-owned role-playing game, which is starting to look, after a couple of years of work, like it's going to be launching this year, called After the War, which the best way to describe After the War, which I'm doing with the the incredible Jason Peter over at Genesis of Legend, is, um, how best to describe this? It's post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic Star Trek. It's what happens a year after the worst event in the you could possibly imagine for a trans-species, trans-galactic civilization. <laughs> and what happens on the single colony where most people end up. Uh, we've used a bunch of other ways to describe it in projects. At one point, it was called Sad Brave Star. Um, <laughs> only in my notes. Never his. Uh, 
Yeah, it's kind of aesthetically, it's the bits of Firefly which you can talk about without turning into terrible Firefly fanfiction, crossed with <laughs> this weird obsession I had which showed up through all my tabletop role-playing last year, the idea of sentient alien music. So it's I'm doing a terrible job of selling it, but I swear it's on the way very soon and we really like it. And, and really, it uh, will be fabulous. It will be fabulous. Jason is is a, a god who walks among men. I, I, I sent him these ideas which are basically, what if this... But we had a female xenobiologist being sarcastic, uh, and he goes, "Yes." <laughs> Seriously, I'm, the reason why he's so incredible to work for is this is one of those projects where gradually over time all the bricks came off, and there's a bunch of stuff which is written in character from the point of view of Violet, this uh, xenobiologist and insurance adjuster who's out on this colony, and there was this one description of an alien race because we're doing this thing where there's the official description and Violet's notes. And I, I wrote Violet's notes, which are incredibly British and massively profane. And I thought for uh, under no circumstances would he like or get this. And then half an hour after I sent them, I got this note back saying, please do much more with her. <laughs> I love She's Violet. incredible. <laughs> so I've got all that going on. Uh, my newsletter, which is weekly, uh, the full lid, uh, goes out on Fridays at 5 p.m. Uh, that is a direct result of me not knowing when to shut up. Um, the top of November, I, I tweeted something about something and, and finished it with, you, know, you see, this is why I, I don't have a newsletter, because all it would be is me ranting about narrative architecture and then going, and another thing, and then 55 responses to it, all of which were, I would read that. I realized I should shut up and do a newsletter. So we do. Um, and that's that's really good fun. I have a regular column over at Fox Spirit called Not Fox News. I'm also reading for two awards right now. I am a member of the Kitchies Red and Kitchies Gold juries, which is the best debut and the best novel. And our shortlists may be announced by the time this episode goes live. And I'm also part of the Shadow Clock jury. The Clark is uh, the Arthur C. Clark Science Fiction Award. And the Shadow Clark exists to provide a critical counterpoint to this. Uh, they jurors provide kind of critical essays examining the trends in each one of these books as they come out. And the idea is that it's value-added reading for the shortlist. And um, I did that thing I do where I volunteered. <laughs> and they went, yeah, do that. Yeah, do that uh, and, I, and I have a bunch of work which is eligible for this year's Best Fan Writer, Hugo. Yes, and please. So friends, yeah, that's me. <laughs> avail yourself. See, and that didn't take nearly as long as I thought because I had really kind of parsed off about a half hour. Um, <laughs> that was that was the abbreviated note. Real quick, what about uh, conferences and conventions you'll be attending? That's an interesting question. We're hoping to get out to Worldcon this Yay. year. Um, there's and we're, we also Margaret and I run the volunteer team for FantasyCon, which is the second biggest. Uh, genre fiction convention in the UK. Don't be too impressed. The drop-off between the first and the second is, you know, it, it's pretty big. I mean, FantasyCon is basically 600 people in an enlarged pub for a weekend, but it's, it's good fun to do. And still selling it. Still selling it. I'd go. I'm uh, impressed. And, <laughs> and we, we actually really like doing it. Um, I mean, I, I started off volunteering as a means of dealing with my occasional crushing imposter syndrome. Like, if I'm busy, I won't feel like I don't belong here. And uh, it's now turned into something very different and much more positive. And the work that we've done there has catalyzed a lot of really major, it's kind of fallen in line with really major changes with the British Fantasy Society, the people that Fantasy Economy is the official convention of, and that's starting to spread out into the UK genre scene as a whole, and it's just really good. That's wonderfully affirming. It's something that started off as therapy and catharsis has actually evolved into something that is contributing to the world and to your own mental health and well-being. That's that's just a, 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 an endorsement. I, exactly, and I'm I'm not kidding. You know, I the first fantasy con I attended, I had that crappy 1960s spy thriller special effect. You know, where the hero's been drugged and there's a kaleidoscope over the camera lens with some burly focus puller called Terry going, all right, I'll just turn it this way. You know, <laughs> and, and the room spins. I had that because I walked into a room full of 300 people, all of whom knew one another, all of whom were getting drunk together. And I very nearly went, nope, turned <laughs> nope, and left. Nope, nope, and nope, that nope. was nine years ago. 
And I've not attended everyone since then, but I've attended pretty much everything since about 2013. And the hard left turn that convention has taken out of Suckyville is genuinely heartening to see. Outstanding. Outstanding. Alistair, why are they always named Terry? Is that a British <laughs> thing? Am I missing something? They're almost always named Terry. Actually, I could provide an answer to that. There tend to be three comedy British names because they are sufficiently ubiquitous over here. Terry, and a lot of the time in British routines, Terry will be a, a burly Cockney gentleman. Kevin, who will often be his idiot friend. And um, on occasion, Wayne, although Wayne has really fallen out of usage here. But yeah, there is England is a country that's in some part, in some industries is largely supported by burly guys called Terry Gunn. All right, I'll just turn this this way. <laughs> outstanding Al thank you I'll make sure all of that gets into the liner notes somehow uh, uh, it's going to be a very tall post uh, this year as it always is when you make the scene John what about you man I know you have a lot going on in the world other than, than making time to be on podcasts what's coming up in your world dude um, well, there's just a lot of stuff. First, I have to echo Alistair's comment about Jason, who is a, a good friend mm-hmm. who did the uh, the layout for my role playing game, um, which will sh- which will be out soon as I'm done proofreading it. Um, <laughs> noir World, uh, which is uh, powered by the apocalypse film noir. So, if you're ever looking to tell film noir, crime fiction, heist fiction, that would be the tabletop game for you. Oh my god. Yeah, it, Again, it's t- taking notes, taking notes. It's, it's pretty amazing, Dave. Um, <laughs> aside from that, uh, I've got, of course, everything over at the writer next door, the weekly blog, my punitive attempts at what might be a newsletter. If I, you know, manage to remember that I have to open a different browser tab to write it <laughs> and uh, my regular appointments with uh, uh, clients and people who want to tell better stories, write better queries. Uh, fight writer's block, fight imposter syndrome. Um, and ultimately, in late 2018, I can announce this, there will be my first ever uh, giant masterclass where I will break down a story from idea to publication. Wow. And if, if I could just tag in that, um, anyone who's listening to this who doesn't follow John on Twitter, do. <laughs> and when you do, make sure there is a notepad and pen next to your desk. I have rarely encountered... I, in fact, honestly, the only place I've encountered the similar volume of genuinely useful and perceptive advice on how to get to the end of a story with something like your brain intact that you see on a daily basis through John's feed is on this podcast. Wow. You, 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 you do extraordinary work, John. It's a genuine pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Alistair. Uh, what Alistair is referring to, because Dave clearly dropped the ball on plugging it, is that uh, several times a day throughout the day, I do just volumes of Twitter threads of how do I write this? What does this look like? What works in story? What doesn't? Uh, by questions brought to me by just random people asking or people who support me on Patreon. And I just start at uh, somewhere between 9.15 and technically it's supposed to be 10 a.m., but I'm always up awake before then. So it just sort of starts at 9.15 with breakfast. And then I just sort of start talking for about an hour unbroken uh, in tweet form about one idea or the other day after day after day after day. And I've been doing it for six years that way. And it's brilliant. What about conventions, John? Do you, do you make the, the con scene? Um, well, on, for a long time, I've been a staple at uh, my local East coast uh, tabletop and gaming conventions. So that's a uh, dreamation. Dexcon, Metatopia. I make it out to Gen Con in Indianapolis. Uh, this year, I'm starting to sort of swing more towards the writerly persuasions. So I'll be at the Nebulas in May. And if you have suggestions for uh, conventions uh, somewhere where at the moment I don't need a passport because I haven't renewed my passport. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. One, uh, uh, we will breathe the same air and embrace each other as brothers at the Nebulas and at Gen Marvelous. Con. Excellent. And, and we should probably uh, add uh, Worldcon to your roster if, you, if you're trying to, to pimp the writerly vibe 
Uh, I would love to. I really would love to do Worldcon if it didn't cost me, you know, like half a kidney and <laughs> a third of like a decent spleen. Yeah. Again, minions. That's what they're good for. Yeah. You, you can cut out yes. their spleen and their liver and use it to pay for conventions. That's what I do. Oh, so. I, I really got to get in on that cottage industry. Minion oh. dissection is just where it's going to be next year. And I hear all of my minions <laughs> going, are you kidding me, Robinson? What? The, wait, what? So let's let's not go there. Awesome. Very cool. I will make sure all of that gets in the liner notes for you as well, John, uh, so that people can make with the clicky click and get on to experiencing the awesomeness that is you. But for now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pause, give a, a, a bit of podcast airtime to our sponsor, Archivos, the story development and presentation tool for today's storytellers. Uh, and then when that's done, John, Alistair, I would love to brainstorm a story with you guys. What do you say? I'm in. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Sweet. We have an accord, dear friends. Don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. Introducing Archivos, the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity, while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The reason why you're here, and certainly the reason why we're here, the story brainstorm. And that does not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the slightly less comfortable writer's chair here in the Archivos Podcast Virtual Studios. And friends, our guest writer for this episode has actually been a co-host and a guest writer on this show before, chatting up with Mercedes Yardley, as well as Janet and Chris Morris. Now, he grew up in northern Alabama in the crook of the Tennessee River and moved to central Virginia in the late 70s. He has worked in food service, retail, radio and television, and in IT, and most recently as an operations programmer. His life is kept exciting by his wife and three daughters. Other than that, he's just this guy, you know? Yeah, which means he'll be stealing a transdimensional spaceship any day now. Dear friends, please welcome back to the writer's chair here at the Archivos Podcast Network, Paul K. Ellis. Paul, my friend, it's it's been forever and a day since we've shared podcast space together. I am so grateful that you stepped up and so appreciative of the cojones you have shown to once again share your story in the Archivos arena, man. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And that thing about the transdimensional space warping thing, that was our secret, dude. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Sorry, you need to flag this stuff with, like, tags of don't I, I forget. Dude, what is operations programming, just out of curiosity? Well, uh, it's kind of a... a software engineering shortcut. Uh, there is a group of engineers known as, as DevOps, and these guys kind of bridge between software engineering and operation. I provide integration programming for the different tool sets so that operations and software engineering can more actively collaborate. So i kind of the guy that does the glue in DevOps. <laughs> deep, deep, nerdy geekery right there is it, what it, that it is. It kind of is. In, I, I can tell. It's, it's hard to do this. When I'm talking to somebody, I see their eyes glaze over. I stop talking. So y'all are in trouble now. <laughs> I feel you, brother. I feel you. So, no, I, I having worked in the programming biz, I, I understand a good half of what you just said. Uh, and I can interpolate the other half. And the rest of it, somebody is probably going to end up in a science fiction book somewhere. Uh, so, you 
you know, just just be prepared for that. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> let's do this thing, man. I'm, re- I'm ready to hear your story. You know how this works, Paul. You've done this before. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title, the genre, your target audience. Give us a tagline to sort of set the stage. Uh, any themes, if you've got those nailed out. Not everybody does, but if you've got a theme that you're trying to work, let us know what that is. Introduce us to the world and the characters. Give us the tent poles of the story, and we will be off to the to the brainstorming races, man. I'm done. I'm getting out of the way. The mic is all yours, my friend. All right. This novel is a steampunk high adventure tale entitled The Order of the Silver Rose. It's about two strangers wounded by grief, driven by rage, who must unlock this ancient mystery that connects them before a shadowy cabal uses it to tear the world apart. The theme of the story is the delicate balance that must be struck between vengeance and justice to preserve the thin veneer of civilization over our savage inner natures. This story takes place in an alternate 1880s. Most of the history will be extremely familiar, or at least readily researchable. The Order of the Silros is an ancient society, the hidden hand behind world politics. It is divided into two factions, one that wants to use its power and prestige to rule outright, and the other prefers to operate from the shadows. It is run by a senior council. The Silver Rose is a mythic relic believed to be the key to finding the lost library of the Order. The etheric sale is a discovery credited to an American some 25 years prior. It is part of the Lost Library. For our characters, we have the Right Honorable, the Lady Alexandra Marie Blackthorne, the Baroness Cinderholt, one of Queen Victoria's favorites. She's widowed, the daughter-in-law of Baron Hagerston, patron of the Royal College of Sciences. She has a particular interest in her late father's papers on the manipulation of ether. Her greatest strength is her compassion for people, great or small. Her greatest weakness is an inability to see people for who they truly are. She expects people to be how they appear. A gentleman is always a gentleman. A rogue is always a rogue. Her greatest fear is the continuing loss of her family and her sense of self. Her greatest desire is to understand the mysteries and reveal the secrets surrounding her family. In order to find a proper sense of herself, she wants to know her roots. At the start, she's positive, if somewhat naive, with a great will and drive to understand. She's got a vast intellectual capacity and will not be overlooked. By the end, she is more seasoned and worldly, maintaining a wicked sense of humor as a means of keeping people at arm's length. She's less forthright, yet more resolute and somewhat sadder for her experience. Captain Balthasar Lafayette Ashcroft is a former Confederate officer, a former San Francisco shopkeeper, and presently the thundering fist of justice in his own story. His single-minded pursuit of Ramirez is slowly turning him into the same type of animal as his quarry. He has a fondness for his colts and for his buoy knife. His greatest strength is a single-minded focus masked by an engaging personality. His greatest weakness, he suffers from target lock and an inability to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. His greatest fear is that his family's deaths will be unavenged. He will have lost them to no purpose, and he will be lost. His greatest desire is to kill Ramirez with his bare hands in order to provide a meeting for, for his family's death and to be free to die himself. At the start, he is boiling with a barely concealed anger. His gentlemanly veneer has worn rather thin, and he's reactive without thought to consequences. By the end, he has still not found closure and is a little lost, but is more hopeful and thoughtful. Maximo Carlitos Jafe Ramirez, the Castilian, also known as the Spaniard, is the leader of the liberal faction of the order. He is at odds with Hagerston and with Ashcroft, at times cold and ruthless, at other times hot-headed and reckless in the extreme. He killed Ashcroft's wife and children. His greatest strength is the dominating will to succeed regardless of odds or practicality, and he usually succeeds. His greatest weakness is an overwhelming hubris and vanity. His greatest fear is rarely acknowledged, and that's that he will fail his family name. His honor will be irrevocably stained, and that he will not matter. His greatest desire is is to matter to the world by way of ruling it in his name with his honor. At the start, he's driven, successful, an underdog who's climbing the ladder to his goals, handsome and vain, and the smartest guy in the room. Just ask him. By the end, he's failed, although those failures are the result of others' incompetence broken, seething, and plotting revenge. In the supporting cast, we've got Sir Edward Hagerston, uh, one of the last conservative members of the order. Setbacks have forced him to sell his title and move into his daughter-in-law's house. He is the leader of the senior council. We have Andrew, which is Baron Hagerston's manservant, the Assassins in Black, an unknown group with unknown motives, and Robert Wiggins, uh, street urchin, who's sweet on Alexa. 
The story. In Act 1, German nationalists have access to a selected portion of the Order's scientific library. The conservative members want an increasingly aggressive Germans to be cut off. The liberal members want the access to be more comprehensive. At stake are plans for the etheric sale, once in the Order's records, and now lost. Hagerson receives information on the lost records. He gives Alexa a brooch replica of the Silver Rose. Alexa goes to the Royal College of Sciences for a demonstration on ether manipulation. Ramirez maneuvers his way onto the senior council, heads to London, kills Hagerston, and destroys almost all of the information on the missing records. He is wounded and disfigured by a sudden attack from the assassins in black. Ashcroft arrives at the college and, after using Robert as bait, winds up in a gun battle with Ramirez's minions, who are trying to secure the etheric research. In the ensuing discussions, a gas main explodes. Alexa finds her way home and finds out her father-in-law is dead and that he and Andrew had been keeping secrets from her. She fires Andrew and is he is arrested as an accessory. In the confusion, Alexa surreptitiously recovers the last scrap of information not destroyed by Ramirez. The Crown takes over the investigation and Andrew is revealed to the readers as a mole placed there by Queen Victoria in order to keep an eye on the order. Ramirez comes to in the basement of the German embassy. There, a Dr. Thomas Neal saves Ramirez by giving him a steam-powered arm and an ocular for an eye. He then replaces Ramirez's blood with a near copy of Victor Frankenstein's life's blood substitute. Seeing that Ramirez wants Alexa as a pawn to recover the lost library, the Queen convinces Ashcroft to take Alexa to America, agreeing to hand over to him his father's research on the etheric sale and assuring him that Ramirez will follow. In Act 2, Alexa and Ashcroft take a steamer to America. Robert, sweet on Alexa, stows away. Ashcroft arrives too late, as do the men in black. Ramirez has minions on the steamer, however. They attempt to kidnap Alexa. She puts up a good fight, but is knocked unconscious. Robert sees this and gets Ashcroft. In the ensuing battle, Alexa attempts to detain while Ashcroft brutally kills the attackers. Once in New York, attempts are made at the port and British Embassy. In both instances, Ashcroft is frustrated by Alexis's desire to detain and arrest, and Alexa is horrified at Ashcroft's killing. Ash, Alexa, and Robert take a train to Baton Rouge. Ashcroft feels certain he can hide the two with his extended family while they search out the hidden meaning of Alexa's information. Alexa learns more about Ashcroft's brutal past and the loss of his family. Ramirez arrives and begins to track Alexa by the brooch. It has a particular magnetic signature to, due to its proximity to the ether manipulation experiment. He and his minions follow. Ashcroft and Alexa uncover the meaning of the information. Ramirez captures Robert, gets the information from him, and takes him hostage, knowing that Ashcroft will follow. In Act 3, at the Devil's Tower, Alexa and Ashcroft confront Ramirez. Robert steals a knife from and then stabs the minion holding him and evades recapture. Our heroes take refuge in the rocks and discover a locked passage to the interior. Alexa uses the brooch as a key to unlock the gate and drags an almost rabid Ashcroft in. They lock the gate and discover an ironclad full of treasure and the missing library. It's set up for etheric flight. All it needs is water. Ramirez and the minions force their way in. There is a fight for access to the well. Alexa begins a defense. Ashcroft is busy trying to fight his way to Ramirez when Robert takes a bullet, protecting Alexa. Alexa starts the water flow, pulls the wounded Robert into the ironclad, and fires the boilers. Ashcroft returns to the ironclad, which then leaves Devil's Tower in a rain of steam-powered Gatling fire and smoke. Ramirez is presumed dead. The U.S. Cavalry arrives and takes charge of the scene. Despite some tension throughout the adventure, Ashcroft and Alexa part ways, and the assassins in black watch all this unfolding from hiding. The end. Not, the end. Not, because clearly you've got another story in there, well, right? Well, that, that was enough for this one, don't you think? Well, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Good pitch. You, you came right up to the line, dude. Well done. Well, I, I know that was an effort to pare that down into an eight-minute window. You did it, and that's badass. What uh, what are you hoping to get out of the next half hour of brainstorming or so there, Paul? I, I actually was looking at my notes. I have been working on this story off and on since 2010. So what I want to do is kick this baby out the door. Uh, I, I've had it long enough. I've suffered from it. Now it's someone else's turn. So that's that's where <laughs> I'm at with this. That's the spirit. Let somebody else suffer over this thing. Now I, I, I think I think you've I think we can help. I, in fact, I know we can, sir, and we absolutely will. But we can't uh, until we actually get our butts covered. So, uh, John, would you be so kind as to deliver the patented Archivos Podcast Network disclaimer, sir? 
Oh, it would be my great pleasure. Ahem. You like that part? I threw I that did. in there. That's Brilliant. good. Yeah, I thought so too. Paul, you are about to experience a variable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important that you understand that everything said from this point forward by myself, by Dave, or by Alistair may be complete hornswoggle. Uh, this is your story, and you decide what you keep and what you throw out. Are you good with that? I'm absolutely good with that. Good. Excellent. Well done, John. Thank you, Paul. We are covered. Now, let's dive into this bad boy. We always start with a quick once around the table so we can get some high-level story points that are uh, set on uh, the table, as it were, uh, and also ask some questions of clarification. We always start with our guest host. So, Alistair Stewart, please start us off. What is your first impression of Paul's story idea, and what questions do you have of clarification? My first impression is that that is the best treatment I've ever heard on this show. <laughs> well, thank you. Seriously, that, you can That's... tell that, that you had sweated over that. That was brilliant. Indeed. Secondly, and, and this is meant to be tremendously reassuring, you will absolutely write this. If you have this in this much detail, and if you're at the stage, as you just said you were, where you want to kill this just to watch it die, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> you have a project that's ready to go. Um High praise. Thank you. <laughs> I, I have a couple of questions. And, right. um, they're the, the, the reasonably general ones. The, the first is, how Indiana Jones do you want to go? Because there are a couple of things here which are very Indiana Jones. Robert the Scrappy Street Urchin, in particular. And no, actually, the, 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 the shadowy assassins as is, is kind of action punctuation is, is really good. But there are a couple of points here where you can lean into the trope or you can use the trope and steer around it into something else. This was originally written to be uh, a 30-minute podcast as a serial. So it was, oh, it was designed to have a cliffhanger every 30 minutes. Once I got to about 100,000 words in the first iteration of it, I decided that I had more than a podcast in mind, mm -hmm. and life happened, and it got put on the shelf, and then I pulled it back down, and, well, I'm not going to go through the whole tiresome process, but here we are today. So uh, action-adventure, I've got no problem with at all. If it, it becomes a, a even pulpy, that's fine with me. Good. That I, For what it's worth, I, I think that's the right answer. You can put together a very, very good version of this story by just steering directly towards pulp and throwing more coal, more coal on the boiler. Um, the only other question I really had for now was actually, no, we'll do this after we've gone around a couple of times because I still need to chew this over. Okay. Very good. John, what about you? First, uh, first impressions and any questions you might have? Well, all right. Um, this is sort of my wheelhouse, Dave. You know that, right? I do. Like, this is my thing. This is how I make my living. Rocket, baby. So, uh, I, I have 17 things I'd like to bring up, but we have time. Uh, so I'll give you the, I'll give you two. How's that? that was great. Um, you're welcome. Uh, first of all, this is really strong and I, I would buy this. I would buy it. I would read it. I would tell people about it. This is there. There is good firm foundation here. Second, I want to slash it with like a million knives. <laughs> <laughs> and that's principally because I think it's a little too big. I think you've just got a lot of stuff going on and a lot of people involved. And I agree with Alistair. You could easily go pulp. You could easily go Indiana Jones. You could easily do like a Swinburne kind of Mark Hodder approach and, and tailor it around the two characters, which is probably where I would lean you or how I would lean you. I like the groundwork, which is why I want to burn so much of the top off of it to show the, <laughs> the density to it. My two most significant issues would be that because you had formatted this serialized, so you've got a cliffhanger every 30 minutes, you have some of those cliffhangers as reactive elements rather than proactive elements. So when uh, you specifically singled out because you took two breaths on this idea of a gas main explosion, if a character doesn't cause it, you're going to distance, you're putting additional distance between the reader and the scene. So okay. the, the characters, particularly because you have such a large ensemble, uh, the characters need to be the engineers of their own demise without realizing they're demising it. Because if you want to lean into the Indiana Jones-ness of it, uh, Indiana Jones works as a trope because it's all about movement. 
good things and bad things happen when characters move. It's not about standing still. So if you're going to blow up a gas main or you're going to have the, literally the cavalry run in, uh, it should be because the characters uh, engineered it without realizing that, oh, by the way, I guess that's the consequence. Not that they intended it, not that they think it's a good thing, but just that it happened. It'll make it'll pull the reader closer. It'll pull everybody together, and it'll make it the speed and the pacing accelerate without you having to write shorter, punchier text. Absolutely. Last element, I, and I, I don't know how to put this because I don't know you, but the Ashcroft arc, his general sense about his wife and whatnot, it needs to be something that isn't plot based with Ramirez. Because the problem is because of this adventure, because of the breadth of everything that's going on, you, you want to make sure you bolt emotion to whatever decision the character makes so that when the plot comes along, this is a day in the life. It just happens to be a very dramatic day in the life where the characters are guided by emotion and philosophy, which you so clearly illustrated earlier, rather than, oh, well, we have to go here because we've just been to point A and now we must go to point okay. B. It's, uh, it's about the why. It's about why the character does a thing, uh, what they're expecting to get out of it, what they're willing to risk to get out of it, and then uh, what actually happens as a, a result of their efforts. Okay. Oh, that's going to require some rework, but okay, that's, uh, that's good. Uh, and, and I kind of agree uh, uh, with, with, with John's assessment there. Ashcroft's motivation, uh, uh, ultimate motivation, as, as I understand it, is... He wants to be free to die himself. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Okay. At the end of the book, he needs to not want to die anymore. Right. We, 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 and, and the way it was printed, is kind of, he's vaguely optimistic. He, he might not slit his wrists tomorrow. Uh, I, I, think that we, I think we need a broader arc. And clearly there's more story to be told here because you still haven't told us who these assassins are and what they represent. Uh, uh, and I'm not going to ask that question next. Um, but uh, in, with everything that's going on, I agree with John. It needs to be tightened up. I agree with Alistair that we got pulp, and I got things to say about both of those. Um, but uh, Ashcroft's arc, you know, I have no problem with the character starting off wanting to die. That has been <coughs> a, a, a potent tool uh, for for a very almost. Uh, a, a vaguely anti-hero thing. I think it's. I think it adds a lot of depth to him. But I think he needs to discover through this adventure that no, I can't. And part of the reason I think that he's so good is because he doesn't care. And we've seen that worked in other stories as well. Uh, if I die, I'm okay with that. I need. I want vengeance. But that that lack of giving a beep is uh, it empowers him. And that that may be why he's so good at what he does. So if he loses that, if he suddenly wants to live, and maybe that's something that happens as a, a turning point in Act 2 or Act 3, uh, uh, he starts to care again. Maybe he starts caring in Alex, Alexandra. I'm brainstorming. I'm diving way too deep. Um, but I, I want to go back to Ashcroft. I also want Alexandra to be much more interesting because she's not. Uh, and right now, Ashcroft is hogging all of the story spotlight in terms of character weight uh, uh and alexandra being the only female in the entire story other than queen victoria mm, uh clearly needs to carry a little more story mojo um i've uh, when dave when when you're done i've, I've got a couple of uh, things which may speak to both those points excellent excellent i just have one actually i have several but we can put it into the brainstorm i just have one last question though john and or paul and this is this goes back to my revelation of the Archivos Insights. What is this story about? Not the theme, but in one sentence, maybe two. What is this story about? I don't know that I can give it to you in two sentences. Um, <laughs> See, and that I think right there is part of the reason why it's so big, it's so top heavy, and there's so much going on because you don't know. I can do it in one. Go for okay. it. I think, and this is based entirely on the pitch. I've never read it. I don't know anything about it. But I think this is the story of two people who discover through grief that the thing they want is not the thing they need. There you go. Bam. There you go. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know that I could have put it better myself. Matter of fact, I know I couldn't have put it better myself. That's that's outstanding. Well, and, and uh, that is. I love that. And I agree. I mean, I hear the same thing as well, which as soon as you grapple, as soon as you embrace that, Paul, and, and you know, make it your own, obviously, um, I think a lot of that extra stuff that's going on, the political and the thing and the other and the wow a lot of that I think is going to be pared away because everything that happens needs to be in service to that core essence. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. Um, I'm, I will have to change my directions in order to accommodate that. I wanted something that reminded me a lot of the old serials uh, about, I don't know, a long time ago. <laughs> I, I, I don't think yeah, there's I, anything about that that would change that. It's just, just the old serials alone. Yeah. I think I think you I think you can do better, Paul. I honestly do. I think okay. we can have that old cereal feel to it. I mean, Cereal Box has done this uh, beautifully with their narratives across several episodes. Television is doing it already, uh, where we're telling a larger story in an episodic fashion. Uh, but I don't think that precludes having depth and focus in the context of those serialized events. Sure. I've, so. I've I've got a, a couple of things which, which may which may help out here. Firstly, regarding Ashcroft, I agree with with everybody else in that he's great and he's hogging the spotlight. I, I've lost count of the amount of stories every every form I've seen where you can see, you know, either the second lead or a, or a supporting character, and I always think of it as uh, Doctor Satanico's robot from the Bride of Satanica episode of Voyager, which was brilliantly a holodeck episode that was done at, not just as an episode of a Flash Gordon serial, but as an episode of a Flash Gordon serial that was a TV show. So uh, the, the, the Dr. Chaotica's robot is a ham who keeps trying to edge into shots in the background to get a little, little bit more screen time. That's, what, that's what's happening with Ashcroft. And that's fine. That's a sign of a really good character, but you've got to work with him a little bit. There are a couple of ways you can, and they speak to the larger point. They speak to the the understandable kind of, ah, I hear in your voice when we say, see all this really brilliant world building you've done? Yeah, ignore it. You don't have to ignore it. You have to bury it and let it come up through your characters. And we'll get to how I think you can maybe do that in a second. Right. Ashcroft wanting to die. That's great. And his arc of, actually, I want to live is potentially really really interesting and really powerful and you actually have and I, I i love being able to to tell a writer go go do some research because anytime <laughs> you know someone in this field does some research that usually means we get to play something or read something or in this case watch something strange as it sounds go watch the first few episodes of the lethal weapon tv show don't focus on Murtau, focus on Riggs, because Riggs is played by a guy called Clay Crawford, who studied with um, veterans and who studied with guys who have the kind of mental health issues that Riggs has. And he's fine. He's fine all the way through every episode, apart from a couple of points where he's not. And it is heartbreaking. You know, there's um, a dramatic moment towards the end of the, the pilot where he basically goes, yeah, I'll go over here and get killed. And not unreasonably, everyone else goes, why? And his delivery on the line, because I miss my girl, is like going, yeah, I'll have a cheeseburger. And you need that. You need <laughs> Ashcroft to have that kind of very pragmatic, yeah, I'll be dead soon. Doesn't matter. Because then when he wakes up, that's going to be all the more powerful. I like that. I like, I like that, that a lot. Plus, you get to watch a TV show for work. Well, I mean, how many people get to do that? Uh, unfortunately, that's one of our favorites, and it's on the DVR now. So, <laughs> Brilliant. Win. Um, the other issue which you have with him, and I, I think if there is a weakness in here for me, it's this. I don't like, I've never liked the, you know, my wife and children were killed thing, and I understand the context in which you're choosing to use it here, and I understand how you're using it to drive the dramatic engine of the Ashcroft Ramirez face-off. And I think you're in this extraordinary position where you can do this and you can grab all the energy that that trope has associated with it and you can use it as the first stage of a rocket to launch you somewhere infinitely more interesting 
potentially unlike anything this kind of story normally does, but still built on what this kind of story normally does. You clearly have ideas for more stories in this world. So my, my suggestion is this, that you have Ashcroft determined to bring Ramirez to justice for the murder of his family throughout this story. And then in the final stages of this, he gets conclusive proof, probably from Ramirez himself, that he had nothing to do with the death of his family. Nice. Ooh, I like that even better. <laughs> because that way, you're keying in stuff to a potential future story, and you're also giving Ashcroft an absolutely rock-solid reason to live, because he's not done yet. Yeah. You're also turning him into the very best kind of Deadlines character. You know, everyone loves a hard-luck hero, and <laughs> certainly at the top of a long-form story like this, he needs to have no manner of luck whatsoever. So you give him your big redemptive fist fight, and you know, what a friend of mine calls resolution, where two guys fight on a bridge that's exploding at the end of a story. <laughs> and in the closing stages, he gets proof that Ramirez, while not innocent, didn't do this. Now what? Yeah. Oh, that's 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 a powerful well, twist. And, and, and taking that, you know, one step further than the the climactic scene of of you know getting water to the airship, blah blah blah. I think we need a a a, a, a crisis that that needs to be averted and. Only Ashcroft and Ramirez and Alex Alexandra working together can actually achieve uh, uh, abort this larger crisis. Because if that's happening, and Ashcroft abandons his quest to fight his personal vengeance in Ramirez, threatening the whole world in the name of his personal comfort and and satisfaction, uh, uh, it calls into question his heroism. It's a wonderful dark time of the soul. When he discovers that Ramirez isn't the killer, the one he's been seeking, he can redeem himself and hopefully pull success out of the jaws of defeat. I have a point that can tie these things together. Nice. Bring it. I think it's this. I think it's, it's about Ramirez and it's about your world building assassins. Okay. Uh, clearly, the urgency, the driver of this thing that's going to make them bond together are the assassins, where I believe um, it would make structural sense if everybody thinks, oh, the assassins are Ramirez's goons. And part of what reveals Ramirez as the I didn't kill your family is the idea that, oh, no, they're not my guys. They're, they're, they're these other things. Here's another. It's another vector of story crashing into us. I like that. The other element you can do with Ramirez so that he's not just the pitched foil to Ashcroft is what, what if he fell in love with your female protagonist to give her something to do other than just be the only woman on the page? Dude. And if you, need, if you need recommendations as to how to write that so that it sounds like, you know, something deep, I can recommend that you go look at the work of Elizabeth Cole and Juno Black. Because if you create, if the romance isn't a B plot, like my main character falls in love with the secondary character, you can step away from that part of the trope, but use the idea of somebody liking someone else to galvanize them into that third act where your confrontation, where Ashcroft is going to seek his vengeance is all of a sudden conflicted because, hey, these two people are okay and they kind of like each other. (laughs) And and just a quick interjection. Um, I think Andrew and Robert uh, uh, both, and, and even even Edward Hagerston, they all need to be women. Yes, I, I think I'm so women. glad you said that. I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think that would just add a, a, a marvelous dynamic to the whole experience, and also uh, uh, you know open up opportunities for a a, a more inclusive and diverse uh, uh, Victorian era that I think is 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 definitely missing yes. at this point. So, John, let me ask you, what about Alexandra? I think she needs help. I think she needs beefing. She needs uh, uh, agency. She needs something. What, uh, what's your take on her, and what do you think we can do to give her more, more agency and more presence in the story spotlight? Well, I'm not sure Paul's going to like this, but my first note the minute that he got to the second paragraph of his pitch was, why isn't Alexandra and Ashcroft the same person? Just to merge them together, because it sounds like they're two parts of the same coin. They're both grieving something, loss of, you know, a subverted trope about the death of family so that it doesn't totally sound like it's the, you know, the haunted man. It can be the haunted woman, which is an aspect of loss and maternity that you don't really get to see in this pulp genre. And then you can give her something to do other than be the, if you don't want to use the Ramirez loves me, I 
kind of dig this guy thing, if you want to go in a different direction, then she has to be not the smart badass, but the capable badass who will act in place where Ashcroft cannot. The idea I'm going to propose is that Ashcroft's driven by vengeance. He's driven by getting this thing resolved. And he gets to that final moment where he's been partnering with her for this whole story and it's affected his humanity to the point where this is his moment he can seize Ramirez and as you said in your pitch kill him with his bare hands and he can't he can't bring himself to do it but maybe Alexa can or more sourly maybe she does and she has to live with it Oh man! and that as well as being brilliant actually springboards onto one of the points I was going to make regarding Alexa Please. I think the issue that you have, from my perspective, and I think from the, the other guy's perspective as well, is a, very, is a very understandable one. Given the type of story that, that you're wanting to write, basically how, uh, basically, what, what you're doing is currently having Alexa written as Evie Hammond in the original The Mummy. I was, yes, I got and, that same vibe. And that's great because I love Evie and she is fiercely competent whilst being not remotely physical throughout that movie. But my argument would be you need to consider the possibility of having Alexa be far more like Evie in the second two movies. Okay. For a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's going to make this story, especially given how you're building it, infinitely more interesting if your female lead doesn't, how can I put this bluntly, knows how to handle her business. If you have her be physically capable then that that gives an extra level of interest to her relationship with Ashcroft, especially as if you have Ashcroft as this kind of very polite and doomed Southern gentleman romantic, and he's going very well, I shall ride off to my, oh, she's dealt with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Oh, I she- do. Um, one of the things that I had to cut out in the pitch was some of the interactions between uh, Alexa and Ashcroft, because at one point he dismisses her and she punches him in the face. So that, that was one of the things. There it is. So I think this that having her be more physically capable and have her be the pragmatic, I'm going to take care of business while Ashcroft is being the wounded romantic, I think is going to work out really well. Well, and what if, Alex- what if Alexandra's business is exposing this shadowy organization that seems to have been manipulating history since the dawn of time, this mysterious silver rose organization. They are clearly a problem. They're clearly uh, tweaking and nudging and and influencing destiny without any accountability. What if it's her job? What if her reason for walking this earth is to drag them into the light? Hmm, I like that too. You guys are giving me too much stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now now we have now we have a reason why there's a connection between Alexandra and the Silver Rose. I mean, it ties everything together now. Ashcroft's. Is, Ashcroft doesn't really have a, a, an association with the Silver Rose other than Ramirez, does he? Well, his his association, and, and this is where the history kind of gets involved a little bit, and it may be one of these things that has to be uh, refactored as we get uh, more involved in that. His father was the one that originally created the etheric sale for the order, and uh, this was during the time of the, the American Civil War when England uh, Confederacy was trying to get Great Britain on their side. And as part of that, he, Ashcroft's father, turned over the plans to the etheric sale. And so there's actually a connection between Ashcroft's family and the queen because she's the one that said, no, nope, we're not going to do that and kind of killed the whole deal on them. So that's the only connection. Wow. I mean, yeah. I don't know how to tell you this, <laughs> but that connection is not going to work. Okay. And I'll tell you why. All right. Because that connection is predicated on backstory, which is going to require you to have secondary characters make make significant info dumps, which I don't know if you've ever read secondary characters making significant info dumps <laughs> is as exciting as watching grass grow. Oh, I know. I've written secondary characters doing info dumps. I know it's boring. Let's yeah. not it's, do that again. John, do you yeah. have an alternative? I do. I have two. Um, What you want to do is you want to avoid the idea that he has to dig into his backstory to explain his present motivation because motivation is independent of backstory. They just happen to move concurrently, but they're not related. 
It's not, my father did this and I am picking up his quest because that's a different kind of story than the one you're telling. What you want to do is take Ashcroft and say, I don't buy the silver rose as a thing. It's myth, rumor, and legend. And then you collide his wounded romanticism with actual evidence. Because, again, it helps you tie Alexandra to be this proactive agent and doer of the world who's like, no, really, this is a thing. This is a thing. Here, look, I'm beating the crap out of these two guys. Look. <laughs> and then he can come in and go, wait, my entire worldview is now canted 45 degrees yep so and that gives him motivation because he will be our surrogate bridge character who doesn't know this stuff so that she can explain it to him and therefore the reader i love that because that basically makes alexandra and ashcroft conflict characters for each other yes oh my god that's version one (laughs) version two is a bit more nuanced Version two, we'll see um, Ramirez, the the bane of Ashcroft's existence, the gristle in his mill, the thing, he, the thorn under the skin, the thing he has been chasing for eighty thousand of your hundred thousand plus words, to reveal that the Silver Rose is itself an organization that has done things, which opens the door for world building, subsequent stories, etc. And Ramirez is but one agent, one head of the Hydra. And that in killing him, all he has done is set into motion the plans of Ramirez's enemies. Now go live with that, Ashcroft. <laughs> Book two. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to reference, and I can't believe I'm doing this, Netflix's uh, Iron Fist. Because one of the only things it did particularly well was humanize the hand which up until yeah. that point had been uh, various colored ninjas doing various ninja things. Right. And that's great and fine and good. It, it, it's delightful in the comics. It's better in the comics. But it's it was, it was okay in the show. But here you want to turn the silver hand into your steampunk hand. You right. want to turn them into something that has depth and is pervasive because later when you equip your hero with his steampunk gadgetry, what could be more surreptitious to discover one evening as he's fiddling about with it that there is a silver rose inscribed on the inside and you suddenly begin to tie your world building to your character to his emotional state paul was that your head exploding i just heard that was my head exploding yes it was good good i thought so Guys, this has been freaking amazing but i'm I'm watching the clock uh uh tick down and and as as much as I really don't want to, um, I, I am compelled to move us into that final stage. Wow. Um, quick, before Paul expires completely and, and his brain <laughs> begins oozing out his ears, um, let's take one last turn around the table uh, uh, and just give out the, the, uh, uh, a thought that you weren't able to bring out in the brainstorm or, in your case, John, the other 16. Um, sure. And, and, and uh, fill his pockets with enough literary gold that he can achieve his stated goal of writing this bad boy and getting it out in the world. Al, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Master Paul. I think it's really just reiterating the point which I made earlier, which is I I know because I've been in your exact position. When someone gives you the kind of feedback that we've given you and you go, but look at all the stuff I've done. (laughs) Have I wasted my life? You have not wasted your life. No. All you need to concern yourself with is this. What What you've actually done is done a vast amount of back work, a vast amount of background development. And that, when you rearrange it and put it in line with your characters instead of making it the landscape they walk through, it's going to make this thing absolutely sore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, to, to, to quote brilliant English comedian Eric Morecambe, you're playing all the right notes. You just need to put them in a slightly different <laughs> order, and I think you're off to the races. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. John, what about you, man? Uh, well, aside from the obvious, you should go write this thing rather than just sit there with the notes and then feel bad. <laughs> uh, go write, but uh, uh, more practically, because I'll, I'll pivot practically now. Uh, every sentence is a camera, 
and it puts part of the movie in the reader's head. Either that sentence is going to establish a thing that was previously unknown or it's going to expand a thing that was previously known. Every sentence is a camera. So ask when writing this sentence, that sentence, this paragraph, that thing, what is it I'm trying to put in the reader's head and am I describing it clearly? Should I move the camera? Should I zoom? Should I focus? Do I need to come at this from a different angle? If I were looking at this on TV, what would I see? Think beyond just the, well, I'm going to tell them that they're fighting a, a sword fight. No, move the camera closer. Tell me about fists and knuckles and teeth and sweat. Move the camera. Move us around. Show off your Paul craft that only Paul can do. Nice. I like that, too. Very nice. That's, and and that, that is wonderful, applicable advice on both counts. Um, for myself, Paul, because it's my podcast, I'm going to do two things. Um, <laughs> one, one is very, very brief. Uh, you had talked about your, the, the genesis of this being a serialized uh, uh, audio fiction podcast thing. Um, and I'm going to offer a suggestion. I don't know if it's a good one, but rather than write a novel... Perhaps a series of novellas uh, uh, with the with the commitment of telling a complete story in those novellas that when pieced together, tell the larger tale. Um, and, and I just I, because there is so much happening, because after this podcast, after this brainstorm, Ramirez, Ashcroft and Alexander both have a lot more depth and there's a lot more world out there. Uh, breaking it down into novellas and offering complete stories that tell a tale in a larger arc uh, might be liberating for you. It might actually allow you to put the end on a piece of the story which might inspire you to continue writing it. That's one. The other one is you casually dropped the notion of Frankenstein serum in that pitch and I don't remember if it was this one or the dress rehearsal but there was Sherlock Holmes that was mentioned in there my my suggestion uh, and and okay on the one hand Easter eggs is awesome you know Easter eggs for the known fabulous awesome and and aficionados of the steampunk genre will probably pick up on most of those that's very cool um, the, dropping the name Frankenstein in a story, dropping the name Sherlock Holmes in a story is a promise. And if there's nothing else about that, I would I would advance that you've broken your promise. That said, I love the idea of Dr. Jekyll and the Invisible Man and Frankenstein and the Mummy and the Titanic and, and Sherlock Holmes and all of these people living in your world. Um, but if you are going to invoke them, uh, I, I feel as if it might be kind of cool to give them a little more story space, not spotlight, not a story about Frankenstein or anything like that. But if you're going to invoke it, use it. Look at the the genesis of man. Look at the nature of life. If you're going to invoke Frankenstein, look at the, the savagery of serial killers. If you're going to invoke the act, the Ripper. Um, use those tools to your advantage uh, uh, and not just as candy sprinkles that are like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Isn't this cute? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, Paul, here's the deal. In the past, and you've experienced this past, actually, we would, we would say, go and write this story and we will, we will knight you and make you a knight of the roundtable podcast. Um, we're, we're past that now. We've grown up. Uh, we're actually going to give you a tool that is actually going to help you track all of that freaking world building and all of those character arcs and all of those massive events. We are going to give you a free year of the Archivos story development platform for you to use for the telling of your tale. Are you down with that? I am so down with that. Absolutely awesome. Good. And we'll get that to you right away. Um, Alistair, I think you already have uh, a, a lifetime yeah. subscription to Archivos. I think I do. Uh, but I am going to give you a, a, a year-long coupon that you can then gift to someone else. Uh, Bless you, sir. Uh, Thank spread, you. Spread the love. And, John, uh, I know 
I think you just heard of Archivos like three days ago. Um, so I'm yes, but I did my homework, Dave. I researched things. You, I looked stuff up. You totally did. You came in prepared. Uh, you were you came in hard, and I'm gonna. I want to reward you for giving you and give you a, a year of Archivos as well, so you can not only uh, uh, so you can take that research and actually apply it uh, in a meaningful way and see if it's something that will help you. So. Archivos, you get Archivos. You get Archivos. Everybody gets Archivos. Uh, Thank you, Story Oprah. (laughs) Story Oprah. I can rock that all day long. Paul, that was awesome, man. Thank you so much for for braving once again the Brainstorm Arena. You acquitted yourself beautifully, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I had a blast. It's always fun to to have your stuff picked together by people that know what they're doing. No kidding. I hear you. I hear you. And speaking of people that know what they're doing, Alistair, thank you, sir. You are, again, the reason why we bring on experienced veteran authors into the world of brainstorming. Uh, It was enlightening, enriching, and inspiring, and other words that start with vowels. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Dave. This has been a blast. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And John, holy crap. uh, Dude, clearly we're going to do this again. Um, Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Friends, you you got a sampling of of John's story mojo there. Uh, And if you're thinking, gosh, boy, I I wish I, I could just play the podcast again, but how can I get John's mojo working on my story? Well, first of all, you should submit to be a guest writer on the Archivos Podcast Network, and we will make sure that John is on that episode. The other thing that you can do is go out to John. Well, you'd want to probably start with Twitter because (laughs) I am all over Twitter. Uh, Twitter is my most favoritist form of social media, and you can follow me on social media at awesome, A-W-E-S-O-M-E, underscore that's shift in the dash key j-o-h-n you need to use the underscore because otherwise awesome john without the underscore is a totally different guy he's a dj he has blocked me on social media he doesn't like me um awesome underscore john and And i give out this advice daily starting at 9 a.m eastern but it's supposed to be at 10 a.m eastern it's just that i i don't like following my own rules (laughs) <laughs> and then for more of my goodness, you can find uh, all my stuff, including my blog, uh, at writernextdoor.com. Bam. Ding. As they say in the podcast sphere, excellent. Outstanding. Uh, this this has been fabulous. I'm, as usual, drenched. Uh, I'm even wearing a Hawaiian shirt because I knew this was going to be a, a smoking hot brainstorm, and I'm still sopping wet. Uh, I'm spent as always, but friends, here's the beauty of the Archivos Podcast Network. In just 14 days, like a phoenix from the ashes, we shall arise with another guest host pouring wisdom in our ears, a courageous guest writer offering up a brilliant story idea for brainstorming goodness more Archivos Podcast Network fabulosity to be had by all. And I know it's 14 days. We just can't crank these out any quicker. John, what would you recommend our listeners do to fill the time between now and 14 days from now and their next installment of Archivos goodness? Other than go and write, uh, I will tell you what I tell everybody every day, which is do not give up on your dreams. Dude. Wisdom, wisdom from the mount, absolutely, because there's a lot of stuff out there that will tempt you to do so. Uh, uh, And that would probably be the greatest sin of all for you to listen to those foolish, foolish words. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the top shelf blue label goodness. Look for the lost Christmas present at the back of the Christmas tree. The loose change in the sofa. Look for that awesome stuff in the world, friends. And I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll be back in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Archivos Brainstorms is copyrights 2017 by WonderThink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org.
Theme music for this episode of Archivos Brainstorms was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.